Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast which covers economics, finance, politics, and the arts. I give the speaker just six minutes to make their opening argument. Today's topic is the red-hot art market. Our first speaker today is Wendy Cromwell, who is an art consultant who assists collectors to buy major artworks. Wendy visited us down here in Miami during the Miami Art Basel Fair, and I want to learn from her what she saw at the fair and what does that mean for the state of the art market today. Our second speaker is Claudia Gould, who is the director of the Jewish Museum in New York. My wife and I met Claudia when she was the director of the ICA Museum at the University of Pennsylvania 20 years ago. I've asked Claudia to tell us about her new exhibit at the Jewish Museum entitled New York 1962 to 1964, which is showing until January 8th. This show is fantastic, and I encourage all of you to see this provocative and interesting exhibit. I hope to learn from Claudia how her team came up to make this show and the challenges that she faced making it happen during COVID. Buckle up. I make this podcast to learn, and I offer this program free of charge to anyone that is interested. Please tell your friends about it and have them sign up to receive our weekly emails about upcoming shows. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe so that you can continue to enjoy this content. Okay, let's start with Wendy's opening six-minute remarks. Hi, Larry. It's so nice to be back on this show. I am talking today a little bit about the state of the art market. I'm an art advisor and an art collection builder with a 30-year career in the contemporary art world, first at Sotheby's, organizing contemporary art auctions, and then as the founder of my firm, Cromwell Art, LLC. The health of the art industry isn't measured by concrete metrics because so much of the data is privately held, and what's actually reported is often inaccurately reported and not fact-checkable. I personally take the pulse of the art market by consistently attending auctions and art fairs to find out which way the wind is blowing. I participate at auctions and I transact routinely in galleries. I keep my ear to the ground at art fairs, which is what I did earlier this month in Miami. Before we discuss Miami, I'll briefly summarize the key events that lead up to it. The contemporary art season kicks off in London in October with contemporary art auctions and the Freeze Art Fair. Freeze was packed with record crowds and dealers reported strong sales. I was there on the ground making some of those sales and I felt the energy. Sotheby's had its best sale in seven years in London, achieving 107 million British pounds. I was outbid on a Gerhard Richter landscape, so I can personally attest to the strength of the bidding, which saw really strong participation from Asia. The smaller Hong Kong auctions followed later. The ultra-contemporary art market basically defined by artists who were born after 1974, is currently the largest growth segment of the contemporary art market. And that is fueled mostly by Asian buyers under 40 years old. So those Hong Kong sales were down by about 20% compared to last year, but that probably had a lot to do with COVID lockdowns in China. Next up come the New York auctions, which take place in mid-November, and those are perceived as the true test of the market leading into Miami Art Basel. Due to the Paul Allen sale, which made $1.6 billion, a record for any single owner sale, expectations were cautiously optimistic heading into the general owner sales that happened the following week. Sotheby's made $315 million in one night, and Christie's made $421 million generating more revenue than those combined sales in 2021. So heading into Miami with the solid auctions just weeks before, expectations were pretty good. This was the 20th year of the Miami Basel Art Fair. It was bigger this year than ever before with 283 galleries from 28 countries 
and 26 of those galleries were participating for the first time. It's really hard to get into the Miami Art Fair. It's a very serious jury that vets every participant, and it was kind of a big deal that they opened up the gates a little bit and let in a bunch of new galleries. While the roster was international, the bulk of exhibitors were from North America. I experienced unique opportunities to acquire art at every price point, from emerging artists to established late career artists. Every client that attended the fair with me bought works from PDFs in advance of the fair and in person doing work on the ground at the fair. Sales were strong across the board. Miami's not usually a fair that has a lot of multi-million dollar sales. Notable higher-end sales this year included an Agnes Martin painting at Pace for $7 million, probably feeding off the record price set in the November auctions for Agnes Martin, and a Philip Gustin at Hauser & Worth that sold for $7 million, Philip Gustin being a top artist who had a major media event moment when his big retrospective was canceled and paintings were pulled that were controversial from that show. So he's been in the news a lot. And there's a good amount of inventory available out of the estate. Hauser & Worth controls it. They're the ones who sold that picture. Other top-selling artists in the multi-million dollar category included George Kondo, Andy Warhol, and Keith Haring. Most of the sales at Miami are below 500000 There were strong sales of Alex Katz paintings, which were tied into his current retrospective of the Guggenheim. If you haven't seen it, definitely check it out. Why does the art year kickstart in London in the fall? There's a series of auctions that take place in London, and the Freeze Art Fair piggybacked onto that energy many years ago. The stock market is down 20% this year. Have you seen a decline in the prices of works of art? I wouldn't say prices are down, but I think dealers are more willing to negotiate on pricing. It really depends on the art object itself. It's really hard to generalize, but for sure there were slower sales in Miami. Things that typically would have sold the first day of the fair were still available the second day of the fair. That's not to say they didn't sell, just deals took longer to close. The first day of the fair in Miami is when most of the sales happen. Can you explain the sales process and why things sell that first day? You need to be able to score one of the coveted VIP passes. I heard a rumor this year that somebody hawked a VIP pass outside Miami Art Basel for 6000 bucks on opening day. Why was there less trading than usual the first day of the fair? And why did many pieces take longer to sell? I go every day with buyers and transact every day of the fair. I think it's a myth that transactions don't happen every day of the fair. But for sure, the opening day is the heaviest transacting day. And the fact that a lot of art is sold in advance is a negative because you get there on opening day and so much of the art is actually sold. So honestly, it's the weeks leading up to the fair that are the heaviest transacting days. And then sometimes what happens on opening day is things that you have on hold, you don't buy. Some galleries did spectacularly well, which was the really top end of the market and the really bottom end of the market. And for a while now, it's been a barbell. The middle of the market is struggling a little bit right now. I walked the Miami Art Fair over three days. And each day, there is new art on the wall. What's going on? Art Basel insists that participants have 
available work on the walls every day of the fair. This is an incredible opportunity to make sales happen. Now there are also private viewing rooms that are not open to the public. They're by the bathrooms in the back of the space. And you are allowed to walk back there escorted by a gallery for a specific 20-minute window to look at a painting. There are curtains in front of all the other galleries. You're not supposed to peek in, but of course I do. That's an even ultra-private level of buying and a way to keep desirable pictures away from strolling eyes. Miami or Basel is not the only game in town, and there are a bunch of other fabulous fairs to see. Tell me about them. There's a fair called Untitled. It's a catch-all for people who can't get into Art Basel, dealers who just don't have the gravitas to get in. It's a really fun fair. It's a very different experience from Art Basel. I make discoveries at that fair all the time. A lot of the artists just aren't as well-established, and price points are a lot lower. The New Art Dealers Alliance, known as NADA, is a membership-based fair. A lot of the younger galleries are part of that fair, and it's also a very exciting, interesting way to look at emerging art. Every year, a few dealers who are at NADA get accepted to Art Basel. There's also Scope, and there's also a Latin American art fair called Pinta that I've never been to, and there's also a fair for print dealers called Inc. I also attended the Miami Art Fair, which includes dealers that specialize in secondary sales, while Miami Art Basel focuses on primary art dealers. Can you explain the difference? Galleries that represent artists directly are called primary dealers because they are the first source for selling that work of art. The secondary market is when the art has a life beyond its original owner. There's a whole pricing system built into that kind of art that's based on auction and public data about how that art trades. In order for there to be a secondary market, it is presumed that there is a public record of pricing for work by that artist so that you can be well-informed about pricing. With primary dealing, it's the dealer who sets the price, and there really isn't much negotiating you can do on the price for a new work of art. Why do you prefer to buy from a primary dealer? Secondary market deals are a necessary segment of the market. I don't shy away from them. The bulk of my business is primary market deals because I am a contemporary art dealer. I have relationships that allow me access to extremely desirable work by living artists. Those relationships are not available to just everybody. And so if you want to work by one of those artists and you don't have access, you'll need to go to auction or to a dealer who is transacting on the secondary market. I allow clients the benefit of my access and the price points are lower. You can pay half of what it would cost on the secondary market to buy primary market works. And since I act as a fiduciary for my clients and get them the best art at the right price, it behooves me to go through the primary market system. Are there deals that require purchasing two works, one for you and the other for a museum? The primary responsibility of an art dealer who's working with a living artist is to place those works in public collections where they will be housed, hopefully in perpetuity, and where the public will be able to see the works of art. Museums don't have the funds that private collectors have, so to enable those transactions, 
galleries are willing to give a discount to museums. That's always been the case in the art world. What's increasingly happening is that museums don't have the funds, even with a significant discount, to acquire contemporary artists. Private collectors are stepping in to buy works directly as promised gifts or directly outright as gifts for museums. Is it a package deal? A two-for-one? Yes, the package deal (laughs) is a trend for certain artists where their work is very much in demand. The gallery could sell this work to 50 people in line waiting for this work. So how does a dealer distinguish in that case who should get access to the work? Often it's buy one for a museum and then you get one for yourself. And that has a name, BOGO, buy one, get one. That has become something that's very controversial in the art world, but it's less common than you think. What's actually becoming more common is that galleries are making collectors sign Write a first refusal document stating that galleries have a lockup for five years after you buy the work. And if you do resell it, you have to resell it through the gallery. It's a strategy to discourage flipping. Is flipping common? Yes, flipping is common. And it has been for a long, long time to buy work and then turn around and put it at auction and sell into that upward trend. It's highly frowned on and... It ruins access for the collector for future sales. But if you're looking to make a big profit, sometimes those things aren't that relevant. The Miami Art Basel Fair is a huge success. How important was the local Miami art community and its art museums to the fair's development? Well, that is actually a great question, Larry. And it's the reason that the Basel Art Fair ended up in Miami. As you know, the mothership is in Basel, Switzerland. The whole idea of having a fair in Miami came about because of the rebels. They were in Miami buying art on a massive scale. They opened a space to display their art in a former narcotics warehouse, and they put themselves on the map by opening their collection to the public and putting it into a foundation. They brought curators and art lovers to Miami to see their space. That kind of energy was how Miami Art Basel came about. In the last couple of years, African-American art has been red hot. Is that trend continuing? And what else is hot right now? Certainly African-American art is continuing, and so is Asian diasporic art. There's a lot of energy coming out of Korea, a lot of creativity in Korea with the music scene and the food scene and the fashion scene and the television industry. There's a lot of interest in overlooked artists of the 70s and two names, Lynn Drexler, somebody who's come back with a big vengeance, Robert Rauschenberg, who many perceive was overlooked for much of his career after the early foundational work in Miami that sold well. In general, surrealism and realism have been big trends in the past 10 years. I saw a lot of Latin American art that includes work by Venezuelan artists from the 70s and 80s at the fairs. What is going on with Hispanic artists in the market? Latinx art is always very evident at the fair because there's such a huge Latinx community based in Miami. Venezuelan 70s art has been a really solid market performer for a while now, and I don't see that 
going away. That's sort of like a blue chip collecting category. And it crosses over to collectors who don't only look at Latinx art. When I'm in museums, I notice very strong attention being paid across the board to Latinx artists. PS1 has a show right now of a Mexican female painter, Frida Taranzo Yeager, who's great. I haven't seen Latinx art be such a major focus in Europe. A lot of the Western European institutions are looking at Eastern European art because that's been an overlooked segment of the market. Black American artists are being invited to Africa for residencies in Ghana and Dakar. I mean, there's so much happening. I think it's a really exciting time in the art world, and it'll be interesting to see where it all shakes out because not all of it's going to last. Talk to me about the role of a museum curator in the art market. For example, you mentioned the Guggenheim's Alex Katz exhibit, driving interest for Katz's paintings at the fair. Alex Katz is in his 90s, and he is seen by many as the father of figuration. In Maine, he almost runs like an art colony. He buys outright for a couple of museums. So he's beloved and rightfully considered a master. Leading up to this Guggenheim show, major pictures came up at auction that set record prices. You have that backdrop going into Miami Art Basel, and there is an opportunity to monetize the work. So smart people like me bought it a year ago, and prices went up (laughs) right after I made my purchase in May at the Freeze Art Fair in New York for a client. It's really important to travel and keep your ear to the ground and go to these fairs and see what's out there and know what's coming down the pike and time your purchase well so that you get in there and then sit back and watch the wave. It's nice. And I still am a net buyer of Alex Katz, even at higher price point, because I think the work is absolutely in the history books and he's just so important to the story of American art. There's a lot of different mediums. There's sculpture, prints, oil on canvas, and there's works on paper. What should you collect and where is the value? So the inveterate art collector is kind of impervious to medium. There's a hierarchy in the art world, a sort of snobbery around medium. So the trophy object being oil on canvas, kind of like the trophy sculpture being made of bronze. And then there's lower, and this is a completely objective word, categories like work on paper or print. Even within the print world, there are categories of monotype, which is a unique kind of print, is prioritized financially over an etching, which there can be multiples of. And similarly in the sculpture world, a ceramic sculpture is going to be a lot less expensive than a bronze sculpture. There are these artificial hierarchies that are constructed and the true collector ignores them all and just goes for things that they find inspiration in. World-class art collections have world-class objects and prints. And then I've seen people who are really strategic about how they buy where they will only buy oil on canvas and they will only buy sculpture that fits within the parameters of bronze or marble. Some of the most interesting art collections are those that have layers that also include works on paper, prints. What steps should you take if you want to start collecting art? My advice would be go on Instagram and subscribe to absolutely every museum all over the world and start subscribing to magazines, Start looking at the auctions online. 
You can see all the work that's coming up for sale. You can read about it. There's so much data that's available. You can track how the auctions do, what things sell for. You can play games like fantasy football. This is how much money I'm going to spend and see how you do. It's kind of fun. Joining museum groups is really helpful. Talking to other collectors, hearing what they're doing. I wouldn't say you shouldn't talk to dealers, but you should also know they're there to sell. They're not always there to chit-chat. Some dealers are really receptive and friendly and want to cultivate clients, and others are kind of like, show me the money. <laughs> How do you join a museum and get the most out of that experience? There are different levels of membership. I find that they're really useful because you get to do walkthroughs of exhibitions with the curator. Sometimes there's travel with the curator. In Miami Art Basel this year, there were 150 cultural institutions that came through the fair. Museum groups traveling with their board members, curators bringing in groups of patrons, walking around, not necessarily buying, just taking the pulse and having conversations and learning about what's coming down the path for a lot of artists that they follow. How important is it to befriend the art community, the gallerists, auction house people, the museum curators, and other collectors if you want to be an active collector? I'd say it's essential and it's really fun. <laughs> Hanging out with people who appreciate creativity, because after all, that's what art is. It's someone else's creativity and your lifetime with that object and that expression of creativity, it's very stimulating. Some collectors get very friendly with specific galleries. Is that a good strategy or is that limiting to specific artists? These quote-unquote strategies have potential pitfalls depending on the character of the people you're dealing with. A gallery's primary objective is to sell their art. They answer to their artists. So if you're friends with a gallery that's representing incredible artists and you're getting access to that art because of your friendship with the gallerist, that is a really good thing for you. If, however, there's one incredible artist on the gallery's roster and you have to participate in every show and buy all the other artists that you don't think ever have legs beyond their initial primary sale, meaning no secondary market, in order to get access to the one great thing you seek, it's not necessarily serving you well in your collecting. With an art advisor, you have a neutral advocate, someone who just has your best interests at heart. I have no obligation to anyone but the buyer, the collector, whereas galleries have a different relationship. Wendy, I end each episode on a note of optimism. What are you optimistic about in the art market? I'm optimistic about this very moment where the art market keeps growing and getting more diverse. The bigger it gets and the busier it gets, the more challenging it becomes to do what I do. Look at the very wide pool of art out there and decide what's going to stand the test of time. I just love it. You know, I, I just love that it keeps happening. And now artificial intelligence is the next frontier. I'm so excited about that and how that's going to change the art world. So... I'm really looking forward to just more, more and more. Thank you, Wendy. I'd like to move on to our second speaker, Claudia Gould, who's the director of the Jewish Museum in New York. Go ahead, Claudia. New York 1962-64 is an art exhibition on view at the Jewish Museum that explores a pivotal three-year period in the history of art and culture in New York City. It also highlights the Jewish Museum's own institutional history during this time frame. The exhibition was the last project conceived and curated by Germano Ceylon, 
the renowned art historian, critic, and curator who passed away from COVID in 2020. We approached Chalot in 2017 to address the Jewish Museum's influential role in the early 1960s New York art scene during a momentous period in American history. He used this role as a jumping off point to examine how artists living and working in New York City responded to events that marked this moment in time. Epic events such as the Cuban Missile Crisis, the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, and the assassination of Kennedy occurred at rapid speed and altered the social and political landscape of New York City and the nation more broadly. An unprecedented economic boon broadened the array of consumer goods that were available to shoppers, and an expanding media network introduced new voices into increasingly urgent conversations about race, class, and gender. In this context, a generation of New York-based painters, sculptors, dancers, filmmakers, and poets rose to prominence, incorporating materiality directly from their urban surroundings and producing works that are rich and complex as the city itself. This immersive exhibition presents more than 180 works of art made or seen in New York City between 1962 and 64, including painting, sculpture, photography, film, alongside fashion, design, dance, poetry. In addition to works by Rauschenberg, Stella, and Oldenburg, the exhibition includes many more iconic artists, including Lee Pontecu, Merce Cunningham, Melvin Elgwards, Louise Nevelson, Noguchi, Faith Rheingold, James Rosenquist, George Siegel, Bob Tonson, Andy Warhol, just to name a few. The design of the exhibition features material from popular culture, including a jukebox playing popular music of the time, television clips of the period, TV, as well as newspapers, magazines, consumer products, furniture, and fashion. The exhibition's on view through Sunday, January 8th, so there's still time to come to see this before it closes. I love the exhibit, and that's why I reached out to you, Claudia. And I hope many of my podcast listeners have a chance to go see the exhibit at the Jewish Museum in New York City before it closes. Let's begin with the jukebox. When you first enter the exhibit, there's a working jukebox to the immediate right, and the audience is encouraged to use it and play songs from the 1960 period. The music brings you back to that moment in time. It's very creative. Who came up with that idea? This was conceived by Germano. It was very clear that it wasn't just going to be an art show. He was very interested in what was happening at the time. Take the jukebox. It has been a centerpiece for many people. For my generation and perhaps yours, while jukebox was, were waning out of our culture, you could still go into a cafe and play a jukebox. Anyone 30 and younger, they've never been able to play one. It was Annabelle Seldorf worked on the design with Germano. He really wanted you to understand that art does not stand alone, that as artists, you're not blind to your surroundings or what is going on in the world, whether it's the March on Washington, whether it's a commercial on television. So if you sit in the lounge, you can see commercials and programs, whether it's Barbara Streisand or the Mary Tyler Moore show playing and having an idea of what was happening inside of the home at that time. What was it like putting this show together during COVID? The show was postponed a year. The curator died, which was no small thing not only personally for many of us, but for how do we move this exhibition forward? 
getting loans during COVID, if you reached out to another museum, they were like, well, it was supposed to be in a show, but we don't know when that is. It's been postponed. We better say no. So the show was conceived one way and the other, but it still fit within our perimeters and it still worked. But it was like a crapshoot. You have a series of a dozen photographs in the same spot over different time periods. Why did you choose this concept? New York is many different neighborhoods. You go to the Upper East Side, it looks different. The West Side's different. Downtown is different. So that was important to all of us to show the diversity of our city. Next topic is Alan Solomon, the curator of the Jewish Museum in 1962-64. He was a creative genius. Tell us about the Jewish Museum in the 1960s and his influence on the institution. Alan Solomon was a character out of a book. He taught at Cornell. He was an art historian. He became the director of the Jewish Museum in the early 60s, and he absolutely transformed it into the only place showing contemporary art on a continual basis. Jews weren't allowed to enter high culture. They certainly weren't on the boards at the Met or the Whitney or the MoMA. They became getting interested in art and collecting art because of the Jewish Museum. The artists in your exhibit are not wealthy people. They seem to be living hand to mouth while producing great art. Today's emerging artists, many of them have hit the jackpot to the point that their work is so expensive that many art institutions can't even buy their new productions. How do you think about the value of emerging art and how does this affect museums? Artists at that time were absolutely hand to mouth. And it wasn't really until the 80s that changed. I think it's great that artists get to make a living off their work. Let's see in 20 or 30 years who's still around. There were still only a handful of artists that keep that up over a long period of time. You have donated an extraordinary Rachel Feinstein to us. Let me give a plug for people buying art and gifting it to an institution that it would help transform their collection. You were doing a show on Rachel Feinstein, and one of your curators called my wife to ask her to lend a piece to the show at the Jewish Museum. And my wife said, if you love it, you can keep it in your permanent collection. Changing topics to some of the interesting works that are in the New York City show. One that stood out is Andy Warhol's 24-hour video of the Empire State Building. It was remarkable because you're looking at this architectural landmark, and the lights go off and on. It was something we see every day, but do not think of as a work of art. I'm glad you noticed it. (laughs) I think people look at it as wallpaper, but in fact, it's so quintessentially New York, so quintessentially Andy Warhol, where absolutely nothing happens. It's beautiful, this grainy black and white. How could we not have chosen the Empire State Building when a show is about New York? In contrast, You include the pop artist Marjorie Strider, her work called Girl with Radish. And this is a provocative and sexually charged work that you use for your advertising. It's a wow. Well, first of all, the lender allowed us to. They don't always do. It was in the girly show that Pace Gallery did. And it's an iconic kind of pop art work. Pops off the wall. It's a good ad. Any pop art is a good advertisement for the show. It caught people's eye, right? The Metropolitan Museum of Art is down the street from the Jewish Museum, and the Met was slow to include contemporary art in their collection. But today they got some wonderful pieces in the Lily Atchison Wallace Wing, 
including many of the artists in your show. Why was the Jewish Museum ahead of the Met about contemporary art? I think they felt like the Guggenheim, the Whitney, and the modern, that was their role. But of course, the Metropolitan Museum of Art should have been collecting contemporary art. They bought one Jasper Johns. It wasn't a priority for them, and now they can hardly afford it. The Met is trying to catch up. The Met is in a perfect position to be able to get gifts in this area. They just got a major Philip Gustin gift, and he's Jewish. That's funny. One of the works sold at the Miami Art Basel for seven million bucks. Yes. I mean, none of us can afford a Philip Gustin. What do you make of the fact that Gustin's work was canceled at the last exhibit? Well, it wasn't canceled. Let's put it in a different way. The museums after George Floyd were very scared. And they felt like they didn't address the Ku Klux Klan pieces in an appropriate way. And they were concerned that they would get canceled. They postponed the show to try to do a better job. I'm more of a risk taker, but it wasn't just one person's decision. It was going to three different institutions. So they veered on the side of safe. The show is up now. It is traveling now. Each venue is taking a different approach. They needed to get more voices in to talk about that period of time. We were all sort of scared at the time because we wanted to try to do the right thing and we didn't know what the right thing was to do. Claudia, I met you when you were running the ICA at Penn, where my wife is currently on the board. You're now at the Jewish Museum. Tell us a little bit about how these museums differ and what you plan to do next. Well, I can tell you these museums are vastly different. I walk into the Jewish Museum, and it's a complete foreign body to me. It's not about whether I'm Jewish or not Jewish or anything like that. It's just like it takes a real different thinking. And what I love about being at the Jewish Museum is that within those constraints, within those guidelines and those boundaries, creativity flourishes. And it actually allows for you to think in a completely different way. And I absolutely love that. I think that my next position or whatever I do will be as out of the box as the one that I've just had the opportunity to experience. So I look forward to that. And do I know what it is? No, I don't. You've done an amazing job with both the IC at Penn and at the Jewish Museum. Your shows are incredibly well done, and the institutions are both stronger because of you. Back to this New York City show, I love the layering of mediums. You show modern dance, photography, as well as paintings and sculpture. And I was thinking about over that 60-year period, how much dance and photography are having trouble finding a paying audience while painting and sculpture are killing it. What has happened in the past 60 years that is driving this differential? Who's collecting it and how much money is behind it? There's big money behind film. Paintings cost a lot. There's big money. There's trading up and down, that kind of thing. So it's as a commodity. And dance, of course, is so ephemeral. You have a Kusama chair in your exhibit. She lived in New York during the 62-64 period, and she was not appreciated, and that negatively impacted her mental health. She was angry and upset that Warhol was using her creative ideas and was celebrated. She attempted suicide by jumping out of her three-story New York City apartment window, but landed on a bicycle and had minor injuries. She abandons New York and returns to Japan, where she is now an international phenomenon. What do you make of Kusama and her work in the 60s and her influence on the New York art scene? 
We just got a letter from somebody who felt, why did Kusama only have a chair in the show? And why wasn't she showing at the Jewish Museum like the other artists were at the time in the early 60s? It's true. Museums did not show a lot of women artists. There is no doubt about it. But regarding Kusama right now, I applaud her. And yes, she did not have a good run in New York. At the time, it was really a very male art world. I'm sure she was not taken seriously at all. Warhol may have stolen things from her, ideas, why not? He was stealing from everybody, including the supermarket. That's what he was doing. And he was an incredible marketer. As I said, let's see what happens in time. This is an incredible chair. It's a little bit like Oldenburg's stuffed sculptures, but I think everyone was sharing then. So, you know, as time passes, sometimes great things rise to the top. What do you think of the role of the art critic as a tastemaker, and how are critics responding to your current show? This has been unbelievably acclaimed, this exhibition, from, you know, Peter Sheldahl, who also just died, from The New Yorker, to The New York Times and everything else. Many people are interested in the vernacular and the weaving of the everyday and how that influenced artists' lives. There are many more newspapers that cover art and magazines than there were in the 50s and 60s. So everything is in abundance, and that has to do so much with the contemporary art market and the galleries again. What's fascinating to me about the IC at Penn is that it doesn't have a permanent collection. They can do shows on whatever they want. They don't have to worry about storage. They can do an exhibit on anything. How do you think about that approach as the future for art museums? There's an incredible freedom when you don't have a collection and you don't have to worry about a collection financially. Collections to maintain, to store, it's enormously expensive. As for space, well, art takes up space. And yes, it's in highly expensive climate-controlled storage units. And as you can see, the places like the Met and the MoMA and the Whitney have expanded. Even the Frick is expanding. The Frick is doing some construction work right now, and their major works are being exhibited at the Brewer on Madison in the 70s. What are your observations of exhibiting the Frick's collection outside that dark house and into the light? Oh, my God, fantastic. It's incredible, right? Incredible. I mean, the curation of it was absolutely brilliant. And I think that it's going back into the house. I'm sure the house is being refurbished. But yes, it's great to see it within that light and in the clean spaces of the Breuer building. It's someone's personal collection open to the public. It's so much part of the fabric of New York City and Museum Mile. One more thought on the Frick of the Brewer. Just take those Vermeers, which were kept in the Frick Mansion by the staircase in a dark hallway. And then when you see it against that white wall, it's just like, wow. They could have been restored as well. Maybe. I mean, something's up. I suspect they're going to change the lighting in the Frick and that things are going to fly there as well. But yes, you're absolutely 100% correct to see the white in the Vermeer. I end each episode on a note of optimism. Claudia, what are you optimistic about? 2023 being different than 2022, 2020, and 2021. How's that? It's a good start. Thanks to Wendy Cromwell and Claudia Gould for joining us today. If you missed last week's show, check it out. 
Our first speaker was Nina Scalera, who is a fellow podcaster with her own show, She Worked Hard for the Money, about her life as a 20-something, working as a bartender at a trendy midtown restaurant called Avra. Nina gave us a glimpse into the New York dating scene from her vantage point behind the bar. Our second speaker was Ashley Mears, who is a sociologist at Boston University and the author of the book, Very Important People, Status and Beauty in the Global Party Circuit. In these two sessions, our speakers were able to contrast the bar scene at a cool bar with bottle service at a hip club. I also want to give a heads up about next week's podcast. Our topic will be how to get the best job after you graduate from college. We have two speakers, Lauren Rivera, who's a management professor at Northwestern's Kellogg School and the author of Pedigree, How Elite Students Get Elite Jobs. Our second speaker will be Beth Handler-Grunt, who is the author of The Next Great Step, The Parent's Guide to Launching Our New Grad into a Career. I have a junior and senior in college right now, and getting that first job is a big topic in the Bernstein family household right now, so I thought it was a worthy topic for a podcast. You can find our previous episode and transcripts on our website, whathappensnextinsixminutes.com. Please encourage your friends to join the What Happens Next community by signing up for our free weekly updates about upcoming podcasts. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I would like to thank our audience for your continued engagement with these important issues. Goodbye.